Amen. Thank you all. Well, if you were listening to the readings this morning, whether it's Jeremiah or Psalm 69 or the Gospel from Matthew, uh, this is not uh, summertime light reading, if you will. I suppose it has something to do with the rhythm of our church calendar. We have uh, just been through the glorious joy of of Easter celebration, resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the grave. Uh, We have looked with expectancy towards uh, something more uh, called the... uh, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we celebrated Pentecost in our liturgical rhythm that the Holy Spirit did come upon God's people and, uh, and, and has remained with us through the ages. And joy, joy, joy. Uh, we had a slight diversion a week ago into uh, doctrines. We talked about the Trinity as it's been now fully unfolded to us that there is a one God, three-person God a three-person, one God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unique claim of Christianity in opposition to all world religions uh, other than, than Christianity. And either we are terribly wrong or we are absolutely right. Obviously, we are here because our hearts are convicted that, uh, no, one God, three persons. That is the truth, if you will. So, we come to the readings of today, and suppose it is to say, as Christianity presses out into a dark world, as Jesus himself, and here in the 10th, gospel, the 10th chapter of, of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has begun to press hard on the world, if you read verses before this. Uh, he is healing people, he is uh, casting demons out of folks, uh, he has raised a child from the dead. Big stuff is happening, and he is preaching a word that is uh, authoritative, and it is clear and compelling, and it especially welcome news to the poor, the dispossessed, the alienated, the stranger. And so they are delirious with joy, really, hearing all this, but he's also pressing against the establishment, and the opposition, the hostility grows. And so, as I said, this was a gospel message spoken to a few to say, if you are going to follow me, basically count the cost because there are places of hostility because there are places of darkness in the world and it will not be well received. On the personal front, it's within my own family. I have a large family, as you all perhaps know, of, with seven brothers and sisters. That's lots of cousins, nephews and nieces. And I have many 20-somethings and 30-somethings nephews and nieces who are totally caught up in this secular age, and they are not believers in the gospel, and they are not followers of Christ. Uh, They have lost their family heritage. And um, others of us who um, stand uh, happily, if you will, joyfully upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus, but there is a degree of uh, hostility, detachment, disinterest that comes into our family gatherings if uh, some of the gospel words are brought to the table. So on the personal front, it's... uh, it's um, on, the, um, on the spiritual front, if you will, the church front. I mean, here, here we are, St. Paul, Somerville, with the Diocese of South Carolina, and we have a trial date in 14 days uh, after months and months and months of preparation to um, go up against uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States. Uh, we're taking a stand, and uh, it is a place of uh, disagreement and um, um, a degree of hostility. On the local front... We encounter it when we try to pray in public settings or put up the Ten Commandments on the wall of a courthouse. 
Um, I could pick any number of illustrations, but just because this is a, a recent uh, event, uh, May 23rd, 2014, uh, a principal, Kevin Lowry, speaking at Lebanon High School's commencement evening in Lebanon, Missouri. And um, this letter was written in response to what he said to the graduating class and to the families gathered. Dear Mr. Widholm and Lebanon school board members, this is to the chairman of the school board and to the school board members, I recently watched a YouTube video showing a graduation ceremony during which the principal of Lebanon High School, Mr. Kevin Lowry, blatantly disregarded the First Amendment of the United States Constitution to impose his religious beliefs on a captive audience. He flaunts a piece of U.S. currency, noting its motto, In God We Trust, without mentioning that that motto was not added until 1956. He cites God in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, but does not mention that because our founders wished to erect a wall between church and state in our young country, there is no mention of God in the Constitution. What is most offensive is that Mr. Lowry not only called for a moment of silence, a common ray around the prohibition of prayer in public schools, but then told the audience that he used his own moment of silence to ask for God's blessing. Lowry's behavior during that graduation ceremony is a flagrant violation of the First Amendment and of court decisions that prayer in public schools by officials of those schools is illegal. Apparently, by making a public display of his faith, Mr. Lowry wished to voice his disdain for those rulings and for our Constitution. Your students should not have been subjected to this unseemly and unconstitutional display. Do you think it is appropriate to foist religious beliefs on an audience that may include non-believers? I've reported this violation to the Freedom From Religion Foundation for further legal investigation, but I would appreciate hearing whether Mr. Lowry's display was sanctioned or approved by the Lebanon School Board, even in retrospect. If not, I would appreciate hearing how you are going to deal with this constitutional violation. Can you assure us that this will never occur again? Sincerely, Jerry Coyne, Professor, Department of Ecology and Evolution, the University of Chicago. Bit of hostility there. Interesting enough, there was at least one additional comment in that email string of another atheist who said it may have been inappropriate, but what he did was not unconstitutional, so there was a bit of debate among themselves as well. And on the international front, hostility is pushing forward from radical Islam, and the severe persecution of Africans, of people living in or near the Holy Land and elsewhere, is extraordinarily high at this time. I was so distressed to hear last night on the news, I, I, I couldn't believe my ears. It, it, uh, it's one of these things where you feel so helpless. Um, they reported that um, there are more displaced persons today from their homes than there have been in the world since World War II, 70 years ago. And they said a staggering number. They, they said 30 million people are displaced, and which means they're living in out from their homes and under tents and just out on the on 30 million. How do you solve a problem like that? Well, it's partly because this world is a very stressed world and it's a very hostile world. And it's hostile towards one another, various power uh, factions and so on and so forth. And there's certainly a hostility towards Christianity as well. So whether it's personal level, local level, uh, 
the church level or the international level, as Christianity takes its stands in this day and age, as in Jesus' time, it will be met with hostility from at least some, from the dark side, if you will. So Jeremiah, he's speaking to a culture that has lost its way. He's speaking to Jerusalem in the 7th century. And Jerusalem and Judah, a once very powerful nation, has uh, become a nation of greed and exploitation and irreligion. And in the previous chapter of Jeremiah, just a chapter before this reading, uh, he also says there's child sacrifice on the altars of, uh, of Judah. And uh, he... Uh, so. Jeremiah is lambasting the leaders, the spiritual leaders and the political leaders of Jerusalem. And what he gets for that is what he describes is uh, outright hostility. He said, Lord, you deceived me. You overpowered me and you prevailed. You said, speak this word. So I spoke this word. And he said, the word of the Lord has brought for me insult and reproach all day long. And he understandably said, I'm not going to say another word because it's not worth it. It's too costly. And he says, but I say, I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. He can't win, can he? If he keeps on to it, it just burns through him. He feels so convicted and so called as a prophet of the Lord And when he speaks it out, he gets extreme hostility. And it's really the story of Jeremiah's life. And I expect Jeremiah would tell you that when he found his true life, his calling, he lost a lot. But in losing a lot, he found everything. You know, there's a place in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to um, Peter and the others, another section of the gospel. And, and Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. I mean, Peter's, um, he's having a little slippage here. He says, what then shall there be for us? He has found the gospel truth, and so he has lost everything. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And Jesus says, Peter, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, careers, for my sake, will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life as well. This wisdom from the gospel today that Jesus speaks to us, I want to get, get it in front of my eyes so I say it correctly. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life in Christ, there will be loss. And whoever loses his life for my sake, though, will find the fullness and the full meaning of life. Another way to say it in psychological terms, it is the movement and the transformation from self-centered behavior to other-centered behavior. The cross that Jesus was nailed to was not his cross. It was our cross that we deserved for our misbehavior and our sinfulness. And he put himself in place of us because he was the fully other-centered human being. 
And so his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross are stretched out to embrace the whole world with his love. So Jesus is simply telling us to practice what he has preached as he will practice what he preaches to the very end. He's saying, grow in other-centeredness. Die to self-centeredness. Eugene Peterson is so good at oftentimes at translating the scripture in his own way. And he has of this passage, he says, uh, for the part to take up your cross, if you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. That's the taking up the cross part of his translation. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. I tell you, anyone who has chosen to follow me will have homes and family and fields a hundred times more fullness in your life than you had before the decision to follow me. So I think, I believe we have a progression here in these very difficult readings. Yes, there is fullness of life and there is joy in being a follower of Jesus Christ. But there is difficulty as well because of being met by the hostility of the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there always will be until his return. And all the world is taken under his umbrella, his embrace. And so he's simply being brutally honest with us that to be a follower of Christ, it is to be costly. I mean, we could name hundreds of examples even in the midst of this community, of how that is played out in small ways and great ways. But uh, take a Gary and Sue Beeson, our newly ordained deacon. Uh, He who finds his life will lose it. They found their life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They found it to such a way that they were willing to lose what? He sold his business. He's a fine entrepreneurial businessman. He sold his business. He sold his home on President's Circle. He uprooted his children from a place where they had lived all their lives and took them to Pittsburgh so that he could be part of the seminary community there. He who finds his life in me will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And one reason Gary and Sue are helpful examples now they have come full circle and returned to their parish home, which is very unusual. So often they're sent out to another place. He's here to do this church planting in Cane Bay. And I believe you could interview them and you would see in their faces and see in how they live their lives that uh, they have gained a hundred times more for what they have given up. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. And that journey from self-centered behavior to other-centered behavior is the most significant and important journey we can make. Now, I began this with that letter from that, I would say, angry atheist who was very upset that uh, this principal had done what he had done. You may agree with what the principal did, or you may not agree. I was uh, excited at his courage, personally. But you may agree with, disagree with what he did. But... um, What I was aware of as a personal lesson in this is as I read this atheist letter, my own reaction towards the atheist was anger. I was upset with him. 
And I wanted to fight him. I wanted to find out where he lives in Chicago and write him an email myself. And I could just feel in my own heart sort of the energy of anger building up in him. And so I had to do a bit of self-examination there. Because the gospel way of the cross of Jesus Christ is not, a way of, is not the way of power and is not the way of uh, the strongest man wins. This is also counterintuitive, but that cross is a message of pure love. How he did it, I do not know, but Jesus nailed to the cross, abandoned by his close friends, abandoned by everyone, betrayed, tortured, and nailed, and he's there still. Father, forgive. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. What wondrous love is this? William Temple, the wonderful Archbishop of Canterbury of World War II, writes this about taking up our cross. He says this of John the Baptist. He could say it of St. Paul. He could say it of many of you who understand. He, he asked in this quotation, he says, For what is the great characteristic of those works of the Christ? Not power, though that is present. But in, in each and all of them, we see power subordinate to love. And that is very near to being a definition of the principle of the kingdom of God as Christ disclosed it. Power in subordination to love. That is the spirit of the whole life of Christ, William Temple writes. It is the spirit which descends out of heaven as a dove, the dove of peace. So we pray for our persecutors. We ask God to bless our persecutors. And we do not do what we are tempted to do. We do what we are called to do for Jesus, in the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Love our enemies. Love those who persecute us. Love the hostile, hostile people of the world with the love of Christ. And somehow, some way, in the midst of that love, Paul also tells us there will come conversions. There will come transformations of some of those hostile people who want what you have. A relationship with the Lord of the universe. A gift of his spirit for your life. And a gift of his spirit which enables you to love all. The unlovable, the hostile, the stranger, the guest, as well as your friends and your brothers and sisters. Jesus stretched out his arms on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of his loving, saving embrace. And we are the ambassadors of that gospel message of love, even to a hostile world. Amen.